everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our podcast series on Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. We're addressing the big biblical themes of slavery, redemption, society building, and commitment to a binding code of law, as well as exploring together with our guests how we can anchor these big ideas in our modern lives. Check out the Matan website for details about this year's summer program, Jack's Queens and Kings, which will run from June 25th through July 12th. We will be delving into the roles of kings, governing powers, and advisors in Jewish texts and thought. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Just want to add that these sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content. So if you have deliberated until now about sponsorship, please send us an email. The Book of Akra begins soon, and this can be the perfect time to reserve a Parsha. Parshat Kitisa opens with a census tax, the Machatzita Shekel, and instructions for a few additional accoutrements of the Mishkan, the anointing oil, the bronze sink, the appointment of Betzalel as construction staff, and a final commandment regarding Shabbat, illustrating the foundational idea that the Torah creates holiness in space and in time. The holiness of space, the Mishkan, must stop and respect the superior holiness of time. And then it all unravels. All this theoretical planning for a holy space comes crashing down when the people violate basic principles of their covenant in Moshe's confusing absence while he ascends to heaven to receive the Luchot. We sense that this was all an overshoot for this newly freed people, utterly too fast and too lofty. The episode is familiar. The calf's construction, God's anger, Moshe's successful plea that God keep them alive, Moshe's confrontation with Aaron, and his anger at the people, which translates into a killing spree of the sinners, or perhaps not only. And Moshe and God's relationship also undergoes a transition. Moshe is singled out as having a unique relationship with God. Later in the parasha, we learn that he begins to emanate a divine light that had to be mollified when he spoke with the people. It seems that as the people lose some of their covenant, covenantal status, Moshe gains even more. The last section of the Parsha focuses on repair, reestablishing the terms of their covenant by reiterating the prohibition of apostasy and commandment of the holidays, and emphasizing correct worship of God. Today's conversation focuses on the sin narrative and on some of God's responses to the calf and Moshe's pleas of forgiveness. Today, I am honored to welcome a new guest to the podcast, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, who is the executive director of Ematai, formerly known as the Halachic Organ Donor Society, and was the founding director of the Tikva Overseas Student Institute. A columnist of the Jerusalem Post since 2007, Rabbi Brody previously served for a decade as a senior instructor at Yeshivat Kotel and as a junior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. His writings focus on making Jewish texts accessible to broader audiences while applying them to contemporary social and ethical dilemmas. Rabbi Brody, it's really great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. You know, I, as, as I was thinking about the people who can sort of tackle some of these big issues in the book of Shemot, your, your name was one of those that came to mind. So I'm really happy that this conversation is is coming to pass. And I really want us to jump 
straight into the episode of the calf. You know, as I said in the introduction, there, there are many different sections. I would say one of the most confusing parts of the Parsha is actually figuring out its structure, but we're not going to focus on that today. It sort of has a lot of back and forth, uh, changing locations, the conversation between God and, and Moshe that also happens in, in different parts. But first, I guess I want to think about the people themselves and at what point in their trajectory we're meeting them. And, and at this point that we have sort of this unraveling that takes place. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing to think about and put in proper perspective. I think if you look at the previous two parshiot, or you know, a few parshiot really, so starting right with Yitro and Mishpatim, and then you have this drama of the building of or the planning of the building of the Mishkan. Sounds like things are great, right? We're we're headed in like this momentous occasion, and you know what could go wrong, and, and I think that partly because of the way we read the Torah over the course of the year. So there's this sense of, all right, we had a little bit of a struggle right out of Egypt, but now we're, we're doing great. And this really sounds like we have got a plan here. And everything comes unraveled. And while we, of course, see this as a tragedy, and it is, at the same time, when you're thinking about in terms of building this nation, is it really so shocking what happens that there are going to be not only bumps along the way but like significant falls along the way as well i mean we're talking about a people who get redeemed in this miraculous manner and you know what concepts do they have of using their freedom using their freedom well and understanding what it means to be not to be they've had masters but now they not talking about different type of master not human masters but now this divine master very different models of leadership than they've had for generations. So this is a massive adjustment. And I think one of the questions we have to think about is, well, it's certainly tragic what happens here, but I don't want to say it was inevitable, but it's sort of one of those things where you feel like, yeah, this isn't shocking that this is going to happen to this type of people. You know, it's interesting because on one hand, that description really brings to mind the I would say the fall, even though it's a bit of a Christian term, but the sin of Adam and Chava, right? Well, we have the same the same thought. First of all, how aware were they of what would happen if they didn't listen, which is a very interesting question to think about for Am Yisrael right now. I mean, they've been given a covenant, they've been given some laws, and some of them have punishments, but it's this interesting question, do they really understand what happens if they don't keep it? And if there's no one to physically beat them, <laughs> which as you said, they've been exposed to until now, what does it mean to them to not upkeep the covenant? So that, and I, and I think of Adam and Chava, which we have the same question there also, that we don't want to say it was inevitable or even desirable, but you'd sort of feel like, well, nothing else would have progressed properly if they wouldn't have sort of tried out their, their independence. And, and I'll add one more sentence before maybe a, a response. And this is from Leon Cass's commentary on the book of Shemot. And he actually goes as far as you didn't want to go a second ago. He says, the people's act of idolatry was not only all but inevitable, but it was necessary, even desirable, for executing the divine plan for their peoplehood. God was not so much testing the people as providing them the opportunity to sin massively, 
Why? Because a properly executed covenant between God and Israel requires an informed and free choice on the part of the people. They must choose God as much as God has chosen them. It was only in sinning that they gained the freedom to choose God. And that paragraph to me brings us right back to Adam and Chava, that they had to experience what it meant to disobey God to then ultimately learn the merits of obeying God. It's a fascinating parallel to Adam and Chava. Uh, because the way I read Adam Chabaz is teaching us something about human nature, mm-hmm. what it means to be human. And in many ways, you could say this is te- this passage in our parasha is teaching us what it means to be a nation, right? what it means to be a people that have comprised of individuals who can sin and can sin individually, but also can sin collectively. Uh, you know, a, a Cass's formulation is striking uh, because of the uh, sort of the necessity of it. I think saying it's necessary is a bit strong, Mm -hmm. but although it's, you know, it's a striking formulation, but uh, I I wouldn't go so far as to saying that's inevitable and necessary as much as, well, this is the type of thing that we're going to have to learn to deal with, right? So it's the type of thing where you might not say it had to happen at this moment, but now that it has happened, we have to anticipate that these are the types of struggles you're going to have. And building a nation. It's not only going to be an upwards trajectory. Right. And even the piece about where this gold came from, I think is also striking. We touched upon it a little bit in our earlier episode, but assuming that all this gold came from Egypt, which itself sort of makes it a little bit, I don't know, entangled in, in some moral messiness, the people also had a choice, right? Do I use this gold and these riches for the Mishkan or do I use it for this? And this is one of those, also those classic places, and here I'll agree with your more reserved formulation, that they had a choice, right? They could they could listen to the instructions or they could do something else. And, and I agree that that's what the Torah constantly poses for us, is that while we can recognize human nature, which is sometimes to fall below expectations, we always have an option to do better. I think that his point is interesting, again, philosophically about what that means here and now at this point, but definitely that the reality is that there will be times that both as individuals and as a people that we that we choose poorly. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, this raises a little bit also questions about the chronology of the book and why, you know, the Parsha are divided the way they are, but it could very well be that the previous Parshiot, which discussed this option, if you will, right, of using metals, golds, whatnot, towards building something that can be sanctified is precisely to highlight the fact that there is something greater goal here that can be used with this. And now the people who have freedom have to choose, right? How do we use our freedom? So what's really interesting here is now how the people are going to respond and how Moshe as a leader responds. Um, And, you know, what's sort of fascinating is God, I think, is sort of urging and prodding Moshe to have a response. And, you know, you sort of ask yourself, like, well, what if Moshe hadn't answered the way he did? What if Moshe takes up God's offer and says, no, you know, I don't want to keep on working with this people. I agree. Let's wipe them out and we'll rebuild through me, meaning I'll be the next Avraham. And that's the option that I think God is putting on the table Right? And I think he wants to see how Moshe is going to respond to here. And this is a tremendous moment in Moshe's leadership where he wants to bring the people back and bring them back into the relationship and fix 
even though he doesn't fully know what's going on yet, right? Because he hasn't gone down the mountain, uh, which is also remarkable. And it, and it makes me think in some ways on, you know, on a couple of different levels about Moshe's leadership. One is that Moshe throughout has been complaining, if you will, or noting at the very least that this is not an easy people to lead. It's not just the people are hard to lead. It's just hard to be a leader in general. And so you sort of wonder with Moshe's response here and some of the things he says back to God, it's sort of like he may have said, be saying at this moment, this has to be tolerated, right? Deviances, while it's terrible, tragic, what's going on, if you want to have a nation, we have to have a way for a nation to repent. We have to have a way for a nation to fall and then come back up. And in many ways, that's the theme of the Parsha, is how we get from this low point to being back on a trajectory when we can elevate ourselves as a nation. So it's a fascinating question about what is Moshe fully saying back to God and part of the arguments here that he gives. And there's some interesting details to the arguments. But it's also, of course, just a tremendous example of what true leadership means. I mean, Moshe is basically saying here at the beginning in his initial response and, and throughout, he's not going without the people. And that's what true leadership is, right? True leadership is accepting responsibility of leading the people, even when the people tremendously disappoint, even when your own brother or your co-leader tremendously disappoints as well. And that's a remarkable, I think, message that the Torah is trying to give you about leadership. Your description is sending me back again to Saver Brace Sheet because we have a moment here, which again, feels a little bit like Noah's generation. And I know we always like to famously blame Noah for the things he didn't do. So I'm going to jump on that bandwagon for a moment because we see here Moshe <laughs> responding in the way that maybe, again, we would have wanted Noah to respond. Usually we like to compare him to Abraham and then blame him. But I think here it's also a really noted parallel. You know, God says, let's just start again. And while Moshe doesn't say, hey, remember that rainbow you promised you wouldn't do this kind of thing. Again, I know it wasn't to destroy the world, simply to destroy the nation. But you have you see this impulse again of God. It's that real impulse of, of judgment, which we're going to see later in the Parsha where God finally shows us his softer side and he displays and explains his attributes of mercy, which are so necessary at this point in history. But we really see here that impulse of God again to just start again. And here we have the leader responding, as you said, you know, so well, he responds movingly and says, I'm not going to abandon these people. I'll say also that when God, what he offers him is to be like an Avraham, is to be the leader of a family. And Moshe is at a, coming in a different point in history. He doesn't want to lead a family. He wants to lead a nation. I don't mean that in just like a hubristic, you know, how Moshe sees his career trajectory going, but Moshe is, is of a different is of a different status of leader. And so he he doesn't want to go back to that sort of proto-state of Am Yisrael. Uh, he wants it to, you know, he's invested. He's he's put so much effort into these people and he's intimately familiar with all their faults and their whinings and their <laughs> and their annoyances. And he says, you know, for all that we've come through, I wouldn't really want to trade these people for anything. And it also makes me think. I just said that he doesn't want to be the head of a family, but it also makes me think a little bit about family uh, and just in terms of our tribe, you know, when we're most intimately, people that are most intimately familiar with and we know all their pitfalls, but most of the time we really wouldn't ever want to trade places with anyone else. And so you get that feeling of that solidarity of Moshe in, in this moment in time. Yeah, there is a solidarity here. There's also, I think, a sense of 
that he doesn't want to be a leader of a family because the project of family building and nation building, well, they have some parallels, but they're quite different from each other. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise of the history of the Jewish people right now is that we're not going back to just being a family or even a community. And the goal here is to be a nation. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting question in general and political thought, right? why do nations need to be created? And what makes a nation essential? Why, why is this important? Because we can have all sorts of associations that we want with various people, with clans, with tribes, with subgroups within larger countries, right? I mean, there are over 400, I think, groups today, I'll call them groups for the generic here, that around the world want to have their own nation. They want to have their own political entity and state. So we can't have that many nations. I mean, it would be impossible. So you have to really appreciate the fact that if you believe that your people really should be a nation, not just a family, not just a tribe, there's some goal or justification or rationale for it. And I think where it comes out pretty interestingly when Moshe sort of relates to this is he says to God, you know, what will the nations of the world say, right? Lama yomruha goyim. And it's a little bit of like a funny you know, statement to say at this point, because, you know, I can imagine God saying like, well, I just, you know, destroyed Egypt and I don't really care what the nations of the world say. And as if God has a ratzon or some form of will or anything like that. So in of its own right, it's a pretty puzzling statement. Like what type of argument is Moshe making to God here? But I, I suspect that what's happening is that Moshe is relating back to the core question, which is what was the whole point of creating a nation, your nation? Why are you doing this? The family cannot fulfill that role. A tribe cannot fulfill a role. Right? You had a project of building a nation and and to destroy it all and just try to build the family again through me is not what you had in mind. You have an idea, an ideal, right? There's something great that we're trying to accomplish in the world. We have a mission to the world. That can't be done through a family. And I think in that sense, it's a sort of remarkable remark that uh, Moshe is making, which isn't the way sometimes we take it as. It's like, oh, this is like a Chilul Hashem, or this looks bad for the Jews, or something along those lines. It's much broader than that. This is bad for the entire project of having a chosen people. And that, I think, is a very poignant moment when Moshe is also saying, it's not just about me and I, my preferences. It's about what is the goal of Judaism? What is the goal of this whole people? And part of that is to build a nation. And we can't do that if you're going to be destroying it every time there's a pitfall or a very significant pitfall. Right. I think another piece that comes in there is that why does Moshe recall the the Egyptians or all the other nations is also because the stated goal of that whole enterprise of the Exodus was that the world would have Yediat Hashem, right? That there would be a knowledge of God both in the broader world and there would be an internal knowledge of God within the Jewish people. They're two distinct phrases of Yediat Hashem. Uh, and I think that what Moshe is saying is that, you know, if, if you sort of throw this project in the garbage, it, as you said, it's going to hinder that initial, that initial goal. Uh, there's going to be an aspect here, again, not so 
uh, superficially as God's reputation, but there's going to be something about the awareness of God in the world that will be minimized or mitigated if we get rid of this people who already has become this very powerful echo for for what God represents in the world. So yeah, I think that that's it is it's a it's a funny moment again. Obviously, this is all anthropomorphic, but this funny moment where you know Moshe sort of convinces God, so to speak, and they have this dialogue. I mean, I think this is one of like, while the the Parsha gets so ethereal and divine towards the end, specifically in the conversation between between Moshe and God, there's a lot of these very, very anthropomorphic human frames of, you know, the, the convincing and reminding God what he really wanted. And I don't have any way to figure this out. And, you know, philosophers have their own suggestions, but it's a funny Parsha like that. It really oscillates between like the glory of God and things that are so far and ephemeral versus presenting God as somebody with a really bad temper who needs to be reminded of what the goal was initially before he shatters the whole window. What gets really interesting now is we have this next part where they have the initial conversation between God and Moshe. And then Moshe goes down, and this feels like a very human moment. This is not like a yeah. divine mm-hmm. uh, you know, encounter right now. Where Moshe needs to bring order, right? law and order, discipline, and to, to make a real statement here. Uh, and, you know, it, it's something which, when you look at what happens next, this bloodshed. I mean, this is like a massively violent moment that's coming up now, in which multiple, you know, thousands of people are killed, and the Torah emphasizes that they go from one end to the other, the sh- from shar to shar. And I think that there, you know, there's a whole discussion in the Mefarshim. Where did Moshe get this order to kill from? Yeah, we don't see it in the dialogue. And so, you know, Rashi says. Well, he learned about that concept already from previous partial, like Parsha Mishpatim, where we have this notion already of punishing Ovdevodazarab, idol worshippers. And the Ramban says, no, no, it it must have been God gave some form of order here. It just wasn't recorded. Uh, It's hard to know, of course, whether this was Moshe's initiative, if he just assumed this was what God wants or God commanded him. The text sort of leaves that open. But I think what is clear, and the Sforna points this out, uh, is that there's an emphasis that they're going from one end of the camp to the other. There's a real message being delivered. Uh, presumably, I assume, and there's a little bit of discussion of this as well, that this is not, of course, random killing. Uh, but you know, it's not totally clear, but you presume that the killing are people that are particularly active in the idol worship, or particularly active in one form or another, uh, in the Egel HaZahav, but uh, a message is being made here. Lines are being drawn. Leadership is being shifted now. And this is a very real political human moment where Moshe wants to save the people. He wants not to save the people, but he wants to save the mission. But to save the people on the mission, you're going to have to kill. And, you know, that's a very scary thought in many ways, of course, because when you think about what it means to build a nation, well, certainly one of the goals is you want to resolve disputes without bloodshed, or you want to resolve things in different ways 
right, that don't involve, of course, one member of the society or leaders killing others. That is far from the goal. And I think, you know, it's, it's clearly not an ideal situation here, but a message is clearly being given in the Torah here, which says that this is what's necessary in order to reboot this nation. Otherwise, without this dramatic event, they're not going to be able to get back up. They're not going to be able to pick themselves up towards the mission that they're supposed to be you know, striving for. I think another phrase that needs to be put in here, because it's it's sort of, it's very obvious in the biblical plane, but we wouldn't use it at all in modern terms, is atonement. Meaning in, in earlier episodes where you have people who die at a moment where our modern eyes would say, let's just tell them they behave badly and like make them pay something and, and then we'll move on. In the Torah, the idea that people need to pay with their life for their sins is extremely prominent. And we will see it in many episodes in the, in the wilderness and Sefer Bamidbar. Um, but while that, that phrase isn't necessarily placed clearly here of kapara, our sense is that that's what's being, what's being done here. Your question and the Ramban and Rashi's argument stands with, without any, without any answer to give, but that there's some sort of atonement that needs to happen, needs to happen with the people dying and the people had to die in order for the moment to be rectified uh, and for the, you know, to, as you said, to sort of like reboot the, the system and, and, and then to move forward from there. Yeah. And the next day after this mass killing, Moshe does say, right, you did this great sin and I'm going to try to get kapara for, for your chet. So kapara yeah. already is being raised here, this notion of atonement. But oh, I suspect that if we're continuing the theme we've been speaking about here, about this is maybe a model moment for nation building and not just a particular moment. So that seems to be part and parcel of what the message of the Torah is here about building nations, which is that there needs to be a method of getting, removing evildoers and as well as gaining atonement. And obviously the ideal is not to have people have to be killed, although that seems to have been necessary here, but there needs certainly to be a pathway to atonement in this case, which is a very dramatic case, and certainly in less dramatic sins or less dramatic right, fallings where you still need to have atonement. And in that respect, and going back to your, you know, the thing you mentioned earlier about the parallel to Breshit and to human nature, so here too as well, what the Torah now is shifting towards in between these two great revelatory moments and conversations between God and Moshe is now shifting towards teaching us, is there a pathway to atonement? How do people, right, how does a pe not just individuals as people, but a nation gain atonement? It's very dramatic and it's not something that has to be taken for granted. And, and that seems to be clear here. Pardon me, this back and forth with the Moshe and God go keep on discussing this issue. What's the future going to be? Who's going to lead them? Is this a malach, right? Somehow it's different now from God. This is a very interesting back and forth here where it wasn't just solved by killing these evildoers. There needs to be now a pathway and a process. And that's what's going to be sort of worked out here. and has a very lasting um, ramifications for the continuation of the Jewish people, not just at this moment, but in the future as well. We invoke these passages on fast days and other times of the year 
when we want to recall the notion of repentance and atonement. This is a critical piece of what it means to be Jewish, is to recognize that we have this ability and to recognize that we're going to sin and therefore must have this ability. So that's a, a great transition because I wanted to ask you in response to your previous point is, so if we're speaking about nation building, the fact that people need to you know, die or at least repay their sins, my question was, well, how do we translate that into, into the modern realm? And so I think if I understand what you're suggesting is that we don't even need to go modern yet because the passage of the 13 attributes of mercy are the way that we can move forward without having to kill thousands of people. Am I understanding your point correctly? Meaning we get these attributes of mercy, we can then invoke them and beseech God, and then that way be able to avoid to a certain degree some sort of you know mass massacre essentially like uh, Moshe does with the with the Levim here is that, am I understanding that point correctly well yes but let's also just be careful about what these 13 attributes are because while it's true and we always invoke this right these are 13 attributes but like when we read this passage we're in chapter 34 now when we read this passage on fast days and we stopped the Baal Koreh. We particularly, we commonly end them by saying it's the Chata'ah Benakeh, that God who's slow to anger and abounding in kindness, he forgives iniquity, right? he remits punishment, but the next words also say, right? There's this notion that God is going to visit the iniquity of parents upon children. Now, this is something which bothers people greatly in general because it has this notion of saying, well, what does this mean? That the sins of the parents are going to be paid for by the children or the grandchildren. How does this jive with notions of personal repentance or a personal accountability? And why should I be punished for the sins of my fathers or grandfathers and so forth? But it could be that on the national level, as opposed to individual level, on the national level, that's something that is just part of the notion of building a nation is that you can't easily erase national calamities. You can't just walk away from moments and poof, it's gone. Sometimes those types of moments will take you know, generations in order to work out. I mean, I, I don't want to go political here, but if you just think about Israeli history, the scars from the Altalina, right, where which was a close moment to the Civil War in 1948, continue to reverberate in Israeli politics today. And, and you know, that's what you say, listen, that was a long time ago. They're different people. But no. Right, that those those types of moments continue to reverberate, and it's not necessarily as a punishment per se that they're going to reverberate for multiple generations. It's just that the nature of what it means to be a nation is when you have massive national events of grand significance, which are calamities. Right, those are going to stick with you and the people for a long time, and it goes the other way, of course, as well. Right, so if you have wonderful moments redemptive moments, victories, whatever it might be, that, that also is part and parcel of how nations continue to stay together as they invoke those types of great moments as well. And so I, I think that while we should certainly see a pathway to atonement 
from our parsha, it's a realistic pathway. It's a realistic pathway which recognizes the fact that while God might be merciful, iniquity just doesn't disappear, especially on the national level. I really appreciate this idea that it's a realistic perspective on atonement. I never thought about the phrase which is that it's essentially, it's kind of like erasing with a pencil. You know, erasing with a pencil is always like a very, very unsatisfactory event, right? You erase, you really, you, I'm using a pencil to begin with. It should be erasable, but it's like they're the worst. You can never get rid of those marks on a piece of paper. So I feel it's like that. That's the image that's coming to mind as you're speaking. And I think that it's really powerful because it, it makes the future generations say, this doesn't have to define who I am, but I need to realize that it is part of the formative back history of who I am. And I can choose to be, to speak differently and to act differently, but I can't pretend that it doesn't exist there. And I think that that's a, a really, really powerful perspective on this idea of atonement that comes through in the Parsha. Yeah. And, but, you know, we think of it in the individual level, but let's just remember this is, I think these passages are primarily talking about the national stage. Totally. No, I agree with you. Yes. So we've adopted this and it helps us think about that on the level of individuals because we know our sins always stick with us, particularly dramatic ones or important ones or significant yeah. ones. Right? We, we can atone for that, but we're still, we're still living with that, that history. And I think that's true here. And, you know, invoking World War I and World War II is, is quite relevant as well. I mean, those are the types of national events that stick with the people for many, many generations. And somehow, and you know, three, four generations actually feels about right. Mm -hmm. We start asking ourselves, like, are we still talking about World War One? Like, are we, you know, and this is gonna be an interesting question. Are we still talking about the Holocaust and Nazi Germany, right? As mm -hmm. we continue to think about relations between Israel and Europe and whatnot. And, and those are, you know, I think three, four generations feels about right in terms of understanding that uh, those those things can go away on its own. And so God's justice is a great justice in the sense that it allows for a pathway forward. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't wipe everything out. Because again, as you pointed out, this is not a Noah moment. And this is not Noah. So if you're not going to take that pathway, you're going to have to live with the remnants of the iniquity. I really want to thank you for this conversation today. I feel like we've sort of pulled out of this, I would say, somewhat familiar episode, uh, different points with uh, with different uh, elements to think about uh, for everyone in our audience. So thank you so much for being here and sort of opening up this particular story and, and how it really is sort of a model story for our process of people formation. Really appreciate it. It's great to learn Torah with you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One -on -one and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.